0: Good morning. Um, please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text this morning is from Genesis chapter three, verses eight through thirteen. I'll be reading it in Spanish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Cuando <clears> el hombre y la mujer oyeron <throat> que Dios, Señor, andaba recorriendo el jardín. Entonces corrieron a esconderse entre los árboles porque Dios, para que Dios no los viera. Pero Dios el Señor llamó al hombre y dijo, ¿Dónde estás? El hombre contestó, Escuché que andabas por el jardín y tuve miedo porque estoy desnudo. Por eso me escondí. ¿Y quién te ha dicho que estás desnudo? preguntó Dios. Acaso has comido the fruto del arbol que yo te prohibi comer? El respondio, la mujer que me diste por compañera me dio de ese fruto y y yo lo comi. Entonces, Dios el Señor preguntó a la mujer, ¿qué es lo que has hecho? La serpiente me engaño y comi, contestó ella. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: All right. Good morning, church. My name is Brian. If you're visiting today, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. Uh, We have some other parents. If you haven't checked in uh, some kids uh, to Children's Church, you can do that now. And a reminder to check them out right before right after you take uh, communion. Um, One thing to note, we have uh, some unique artwork that's making an appearance in some of the Sunday handouts. You might see this one and our... um, Deacon of Creative Arts had put some of this together for a project he did in school uh, for the book of Genesis. And so here's some unique artwork on Genesis 3, which is the text today. If uh, you like to doodle and that's something that helps you pay attention to a uh, uh, public uh, talk, then go ahead and do that. I heard some feedback from some of you that, that did this last time that you're like, you should do this every week. It helped me pay attention. So it's a little gift for you uh, to continue to do that. We're going through the book of Genesis, which is why there's artwork uh, for that as well. As uh, David mentioned in the call to worship, we uh, are just three chapters in, in Genesis 3, uh, and this is going to take us all the way to the summer uh, with some uh, stops here and there along the way for uh, special events like uh, like Christmas and Easter and so on next sunday is christmas eve if you didn't know that and it falls on a sunday this year so this is how we're going to do our sunday gathering that day we will not meet in the morning so make a note of that 10 a.m uh there won't be anybody here uh but at five o'clock we will have a christmas eve candlelight service for that sunday uh, to gather um together for that that event so there's only one gathering this sunday and it's not in the morning; it's at five o'clock uh, so something to keep in mind for next week. Let me make sure I covered all my notes here before I pray. I think that looks pretty good. So let's pray and get into Genesis 3 this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you gather your people because you still have things to say. You have things to remind us about, about human history. You call our attention to your promises, especially those that have been made in in situations where we've made a mess of things, where we've broken things, where we've uh, brought evil and darkness in with our own decisions. Lord, you never abandoned us, but you still show up, you speak, you cover our shame, you make promises, and you stay committed to us. Help us now as we lean into Genesis 3 to remember these things and to see the good news um, in a situation where things go so wrong. Help us to see light shining in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I got a childhood of, uh, like a lot of Minnesotans growing up, going to a cabin. I'm from southern Minnesota, the farmlands of southern uh, Minnesota is where I grew up. Uh, There's not a lot of lakes, and there's really only one kind of decent one down uh, in southern Minnesota, but that's where my uh, parents had a family cabin there. My grandfather owned it, and I got to go there quite a bit of times during the summer, uh, especially on the weekends and it was it was as close to like my version of paradise growing up as i could think of like a place that you could just go swim all day there was always snacks and food uh, that were out all day just to consume an uh, endless amount of calories, go out and burn them in the, in the the lake, and we got to go tubing, we got to go skiing, and it was, just, it was just a beautiful place. I always enjoyed going to this cabin. It was my version of paradise. And there weren't a lot of rules to uh, obey while we're at the cabin, but sometimes, because I'm a, a kid, I would end up disobeying some of these rules and ruin a weekend one such time. Uh, I, we just arrived at the cabin and uh, a lot of my, my family and the friends that were there, they were outside uh, just getting ready for a day at the beach, a day at the lake. And I decided that, that uh, I would disobey one of my dad's commands not to play baseball indoors and just decided to take it up for that, that day. And I thought in my head, like, well, what he really means is don't play baseball indoors with like a hard baseball, not like a real one, but I had this really cool rubber one that I was going to play baseball indoors with. So I was in the front porch and just pitching to myself. I'd just throw it in the air and hit it. And, you know, if I hit it into the ceiling, that was a home run. You know, if it went to my right or left, that was a fall ball. And I was, I was really rocking this thing. My, my batting average was really high. I was really getting into it. And sure enough, I, I, I clocked it, and it was a line drive right through an internal window of the cabin. Just shattered the thing. And uh, I don't know what you would have done in that situation. I was pretty small. I think I was probably six, seven years old when this happened. I took off. I ran. I went to the neighbor's cabin where there was this tire swing, and I just hid there. And And I don't know what I was thinking at the moment, like, like how long I was going to be able to get away with not having to confront what I did, because obviously the evidence was there, but I hid. I remember this time that, that my parents, I was hiding long enough that they started calling for me, and I didn't want to go back, because I didn't want to face what I did. And eventually, of course, I did, and I had to face my parents' questions and interrogation, uh, and there was just no way around it. It was very clear that I had done this uh, and and that I needed to fess up because my dad needed to fix my mess. Uh, This is something that really, uh, uh, I think, sticks out in Genesis 3 as a framework for me of like how often this type of situation is repeated. You're trying to have a good time, things are delightful, you break a good command, and things go very, very wrong. And Genesis 3 is the first time that ever happened, and we've been dealing with the consequences ever since, and it happened in such a more significant and cosmic way, impactful way, than that little incident at my parents' cabin. So we are going to look at this very familiar story of Genesis 3. We're going to go through each verse to try to get captured into the story and, and try to imagine what this would have been like. And not only to see how terrible things get right away, but also to see God's promises and provision, especially at the end, despite it all. So let's first start with the temptation that enters into this garden paradise in verse 1 of Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3, 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. Let's go ahead and pause already. Remember, the setting is this delightful Garden of Eden, the garden sanctuary where human beings mix it up with heavenly beings, where, where Adam and Eve get to walk intimately with the presence of God. This is, this is paradise. This is a place of delight and peace, and the, a place where it's kind of this is where everything is meant to be and what it's meant to feel like is this place of peace. But a new feeling enters the scene. A serpent comes into the scene, and, and that feeling, I don't know if you're a gardener and how you feel around snakes, but it goes from a scene of maybe peace and delight to a little uneasy. Uh, most of us, I think, are really not very chill when it comes to having uh, a, a something like a snake enter a garden. Like, I know, like, if you're from West 7th, for example, there's just tons of gardener snakes down there, right? This is, this is like they've actually claimed this as one of their mascots. They have white squirrels, they have gardener snakes. This is one of their, their mascots. Very common thing. And anytime uh, that I visit friends down there, see one of those critters, I do not feel easy. I feel uneasy when one of these things enters into um, my my environment. And we're not told much about this being that enters into Eden. What kind of wild animal or what kind of heavenly being? Is it a a created being? Is it a heavenly being? Is it an earthly being? We're not told all these types of details. We're not told exactly what the serpent is or where it came from. uh, But in the rest of Scripture, things start to unpack about what this being is. Serpents later in scripture are described as shrewd and unclean and deadly. They oppose God and his people. The Old Testament uh, talks about this adversary called the Satan, which is Hebrew for the adversary, which is the spiritual being who rebels against God and falls from heaven and is often behind tempting human beings and even kings to pridefully turn against God and one another in destructive ways. You go to the New Testament, this being is given a Greek title of the devil, which means the slanderer, and Jesus said that he saw this being fall from heaven. Revelation 12.9 identifies the ancient serpent from the garden as, as this spiritual being, quoting Genesis, uh, Revelation 12.9, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray that is the being that shows up here in Genesis 3. We're not given all those details at this point. All we are told is that the serpent is a created being who is quote crafty. Someone or something that is described as crafty should get our attention. Imagine being in a place of work and you have a new coworker and somebody describes them, "Oh yeah, I worked with this person in a previous job, very crafty fellow." Like, wouldn't, what would you think about that? Wouldn't your guard go up a little bit? You'd be a little unsure about what this person is saying or if he's schmoozing you a little bit, you'd, you'd be a little bit on guard if somebody was described as crafty. Adam and Eve don't know this detail about this being, but we do, and as he enters into this scene, our guard goes up a little bit because we know something is uneasy, something is about to go down that's not great. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. knowing good and evil. This tree that, that is mentioned, remember, the, the trees in the Garden of Eden have more to do with that, not themselves as a plant, but the planter, the one who planted these trees. People get really hung up on this imagery sometimes of, like, what kind of fruit was it? Was it fruit? Like, what what were they eating from the tree? Does it, you know, Android users are be like, it's pointing to the mark of the beast that's on Apple products, and that's what, you know, the imagery is happening here. And other people are like, man, like, how would you be tempted by an apple? I've never been tempted by an apple a day in my life. Maybe it was a bacon tree then I could get my head around like being tempted by this thing. Some people really get caught up in the details. But if you walk that back and remember that this imagery is pointing to something more significant. It's pointing to the one who planted these trees in the first place. He planted the tree of life because the planter of that tree is the source of eternal life. And when we live and dwell in his presence and in communion with him, that's what we get. And then he also planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, as I said last week, raises the awareness of ethics and faith for humankind. It raises the question, when God says, do not eat of this tree, will they trust his word by faith? Will they obey his command that he gives? Here you have the serpents drawing doubts into the imagination of Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent is questioning God's command and adding negative aspects of words to the command. You see, God originally said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, uh, but the serpent phrases it, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. He's already twisting God's word and casting a command of freedom into a negative restriction. The woman engages this conversation and responds mainly by repeating what God had said too, but she's also slightly reinterpreting God's word as well. She says it slightly different. For example, she does not use the word free like God originally did, and she also adds the more strict phrase, you must not touch it as well, to what God really said. So the serpent already is getting Eve, the woman, to reinterpret a A freedom uh, to do all these things, a command of freedom to be something more negative and restrictive, that's the framing now of God's original command. Then the serpent responds to this um, response from Eve by outright denying God's word. God said, if one eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then that person will certainly die. But the serpent says, not so you will not certainly die, you will not lose your life, actually you will gain knowledge, not lose anything. You'll become like God, the serpent says. And the sense of this statement is getting the woman now to ponder whether or not God is maybe holding out on her a little bit, holding out on her and holding out on Adam, that maybe God can give more and a better life through this knowledge, but he just hasn't given that to us yet. He's just not doing so for whatever reason. But here she is being offered through the words of this crafty serpent something that might be better than the life that she is achieving here in Eden. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Things start to move quickly now after that dialogue where the woman saw the fruit, took the fruit, ate the fruit, and gave some to her husband to eat. What is happening here is, if you ever turn to James 1, 14 through 15, is the same thing that James describes there. The serpent's temptation entices the woman and the man, and now this evil desire in their heart to gain knowledge apart from God conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. That is what's starting to take place right here. Some might ask this question, where is Adam when all this is going down? There's this conversation happening between the serpent and Eve, uh, and it's centering on that. Where is Adam when this is happening? And I think the best way to read this story is that Adam is right there, listening to all this take place. You see in verse 6 that it says her husband who was with her, it gives that detail that he is there when this is taking place. In addition, the the pronoun you that the serpent is uh, using in his dialogue is plural, not singular, indicating that he's addressing both the woman and the man with only the woman responding and the man just staying silent, not saying anything. And all the consequences move really quickly, too. Their eyes are opened. They realize that they're naked. And they sow fig trees to cover themselves because, because before they were unashamed, they were free. There's this description of openness and trust. There's no threat of sin. Oh No no, no threat of unrighteousness. No worry about abuse or, or violence. No experience of loneliness or isolation. They are at perfect peace. But now something happens happened. When they disobeyed God's word, all of that changed. They now feel defenseless and weak, exposed, humiliated, and vulnerable. They're no longer at harmony with themselves or with one another or their surroundings. This place of peace, this home where they belong in God's presence now feels like a place where they don't belong and is a place that's threatening to them and making them feel very ashamed. They make an effort to fix things by themselves. They string together some type of outfit to cover their nakedness with with these leaves, but it still doesn't take away that sense of shame. It doesn't take away what they have done. They have sinned, and there is nothing they can do to fix it. And the most tragic result of all is that they no longer have peace with God. Look at verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Although God is a spirit and He doesn't have legs, this walking imagery is getting at the intimacy that God has with Adam and Eve. It's the time of day where the presence of God is blowing through the garden in a very intimate way. It's the time of day where they enjoy fellowship and communion with God and connect. And this is something that, that you probably can imagine yourself going on a walk with somebody that you love and then just that connection. Uh, that you share with that person on that walk, that is something that is being used to describe the intimacy and connection with God that Adam and Eve have. But now it's gone. It would have been a sacred moment, a special time of the day, but now they don't even show up for this walk. They are hiding from God in shame. By eating the fruit of this tree, they wanted to be like God, but instead, now they don't even want to be around God. And then God switches now to uh, asking questions of what happened in the garden. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So God begins to ask questions, not because he doesn't know what's going on, but because he wants Adam and Eve to understand exactly what is going on about their own situation. They need to work out what exactly they have done and what is going to happen. Another pastor I read made a great point that these questions that God asks are ones that we should ask in our own prayer life whenever we feel that we have sinned against God, that we feel shame to be around him. Did you catch how, how pointed these questions are that God asks Adam and Eve? He says, where are you? Who told you? What you, have you done? Where are you? When we sin against God, we need to locate ourselves. Why are we hiding from God? Why are we distanced from God? How did we get here? What happened? Where are you? Number two, who told you? In other words, what word that wasn't my word did you listen to? What other voice has become more prominent in your head? And number three, what have you done? Which is the chance for us to confess our sins honestly before a forgiving and merciful God. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve, when they respond to these questions, don't respond in such a redemptive way. They try to cover up and pass blame and ignore the reality of what they've done. Through God's questions toward Adam, the the man confesses that he's hiding from God because of fear and shame, he no longer can stand with God or walk with him. And then, then the man throws the woman right under the bus of Eden. I mean, Eden didn't have buses, but if it did, throws her right under the bus, right? Says that she did this. And not only does he blame her, but God too. She made me do this, but, but you put her here, God. You actually are responsible for That, that is bold. That is a very bold thing to do. The man doesn't even mention the serpent, but only the woman and God. And like the serpent, the man is now questioning God's goodness as well as God's good gifts of woman to him. He essentially accuses God of the temptation. Remember from Genesis 2 this is not what God has called the man to do, he's the priest who is to protect and take care of this garden sanctuary. He is to ensure that this place flourishes, that it's hospitable to all who reside in it, and to make sure that the presence of God remains in this place. That was his task as the priest of this garden sanctuary. He's also called to unite with with his wife and this woman in mission to affirm her God-given worth and her importance. Instead, what did he do? while the serpent was tempting Eve. Nothing. He stayed silent. In Genesis 2, he's glowing with affirmation about who she is and the infinite worth that God has given her and her purpose in life. But when the serpent was questioning all that and taking all that apart in her soul, he didn't protect, he didn't guard, he said nothing and did nothing. And because of that, Everything is starting to break and become unraveled. Then God turns to the woman with a question, and she too shifts the blame to the serpent, but unlike the man, she doesn't shift it to the man or God, but does say, the serpent is responsible for this, not me. And the line of questioning and the response is really showing how Adam and Eve are partners in this original sin. They are ashamed, they're hiding, they're blaming, and they're further breaking the peace in this garden sanctuary. Sin has a way of destroying things, and sin right now is destroying their calling, their relationship with God, and their relationship with one another. God has no more questions. He has revealed what happens, and now he turns to the serpent, the woman, and the man to reveal the consequences of sin in this world. Look at verse 14 with me. God curses the serpent. This is the opposite of blessing. He, he sentences the serpent to an existence of humiliation. That's what the language of crawling on one's belly and eating the dust is getting at. He is now going to live a life of humiliation. And this cursed and humiliating experience will happen every day without end for this serpent. Moreover, the serpent thought it was taking down humankind by tempting Eve and Adam to disobey God's word. But God gives a promise that there will be hostility between you and her family tree, between you and her offspring. And and, and a descendant from this woman is going to come and crush your head. You'll strike his heel, which is a way to say you'll leave a mark, but what he will do to you is deadly and you will be taken out. Genesis 3.16 gives this judgment of the consequences of sin to the woman. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What is happening here is way more comprehensive than the literal experience of giving birth to a child. That is obviously very painful, but think about that as a metaphor. Think about it as a way to draw vivid uh, attention to an experience that happens in other parts of life. Remember, the woman is the one who unites with the man, not only in the garden vocation, but bringing life into the world. So it makes sense that he is highlighting this unique experience that women have to multiply to fill the earth. This is, this is the woman, Eve, from whom life comes. And the pain of childbearing is providing now this imagery for the burden of parenting and mothering far beyond the birth experience. Bearing children and nurturing children and raising children is painful in every stage of life, not just at the beginning. And that's what the imagery is getting at. In addition, her relationship with her kids is not the only thing that's going to be painful because of sin. Now her relationship with her husband and with men is also going to be uh, impacted by sin. Uh, Sometimes interpreters like to try to put a positive spin on that language of desire and rule in this language, and I think that totally misses the context. This entire context of these verses is negative. These are bad things that are happening because of sin. So what it's saying is is that this, this desire for her husband and his desire to rule are bad desires. It's a bad instinct. It's a broken aspect of her relationship with him and he with her. The relationship now between wife and husband is also frustrated by sin. And they are going to start relating to one another in ways that no longer unify and bring peace, but rather bring hurt to one another. And they try to crush one another. That's what's happening. And that's what God is highlighting for Eve, is how her most personal relationships with her kids and with her husband are now frustrated and impacted by sin. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God doesn't curse the woman or curse the man, but he does curse the serpent, and he curses the ground. And now this cursed ground, the imagery says, is producing thorns and thistles. And you remember, if the occupation is gardener, that is the thing that frustrates that vocation. If you garden, one of the most frustrating things about gardening is are the thorns and the thistles. It adds, it adds, adds friction, it adds burdens, and adds toil to the work. Adam's vocation and work is now was created to be good, but now it's a burden because of sin. God provided food and life and flourishing in Eden, but now Adam will painfully work in a barren land outside of Eden in an attempt just to survive in life. But he will not survive, and she will not survive. They will work, and they will sweat, and they will eat, but food outside of Eden is not the tree of life. They will not have their life sustained. God warned that disobedience would lead to certain death. And this is exactly what is going to happen. No matter how much Adam will work, no matter how much he will strive, no matter how, many, how, many, how much he's going to sweat from the burden of it all uh, to try to pursue a good and de- delightful life that's unending, he is going to die and return to the dust from which he came. For dust you are and dust you will return. Sin has impacted the man and the woman in a very comprehensive way. There's hostility with the serpent, there's pain in parenting, there's hurt in marriage, there's burdens in work, and all of this eventually ends in death. As I said before, this is a situation where sin has hit the fan and spread everywhere, and nothing will ever be the same again. Genesis 3.20 concludes with, Adam named his wife Eve Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Adam means man or human, and Eve means life, because she is the mother of all living. And now there's a little light in the text that there's something to still be hopeful about. And that's how these final verses start to conclude. Look at verses 21 to 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, within his divine counsel, explains that man and woman has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. There's a really tragic irony here that there's a sense that the serpent was right. Adam and Eve now know good and evil, but they don't know it in some type of positive sense. The serpent deceived with this thought that life would be better, but it's clearly not. Adam and Eve determined for themselves, rather than trusting God's word, what is good and evil. They determined by their own knowledge now what good and evil was going to be, and human beings keep doing that ever since. And now they not only experience evil and and the sin uh, that comes from it, but now they live in a broken world and within broken relationships until they die. Adam and Eve, the text says, are now banished from the garden, and humankind has been in exile ever since, and we still are trying to find our home. We're removed from this garden sanctuary and a heavenly being is standing guard so they cannot come back. That's what that imagery of this flaming sword pointing in every direction is getting at. They will no longer have access to the tree of life. And this tree points back to the planter of that tree who is eternal life. And we have drifted because of our sin from our source of life. Adam and Eve, like us, have moved away from his life-giving presence because of our sin. Yet, did you catch this in verse 21? God is providing hope. Let me read 21 again. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Within this garden sanctuary, before they are banished from Eden and the tree of life, God provides. And how does He provide? He provides through a sacrifice. This is animal skin. How do you get animal skin? Something needs to die. For animal skin to be provided. And that's exactly what God does. See, before Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame by themselves with these leaves, and they tried to just fix it all by their own power, all by their own work, but they couldn't do it. It didn't get rid of the shame. It didn't get rid of the sin. The brokenness still existed in the world. So God now provides. Death seems like a defeat, but now God is showing already that he, through death, can bring redemption and life, even out of this sacrifice. This animal died, but by this sacrifice, Adam and Eve are covered and clothed by that which only God can provide. And the Lord is also promising. Let's go back to verse 15. Remember this promise. God said to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you, your offspring, and hers. And this Person from her family tree will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the New Testament, Christians rightfully understand that this is the promised Christ that we have awaited, that has come, and who will come again. Christ is the promised one from the offspring of evil who will crush the head of the serpent who dies for our sins and brings life out of the grave. If you go to the Gospel of Luke after he tells the story of the birth of Jesus, and he grows up, and he gets to age 30, and he has this baptism, right after all of that, in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, there's a genealogy, a family tree of Jesus. And in this family tree, it goes from Jesus through Mary and Joseph back to King David through Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. These are all characters that are going to show up big time in the book of Genesis. And then it goes all the way back, and this is how it ends, that this is Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the promised one who is to come from Eve. He's not only a son of Eve, but he is the son of God, the word made flesh, fully God and fully man, the light shining in the darkness, the one who's going to take on the serpent and sin and death and everything else that is threatening humankind to take these threats out. And that's exactly what he does. In the ministry of Jesus, he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Yet Jesus resisted the craftiness of the serpent, not just once, but repeatedly affirming God's word as life, that God shouldn't be tested, and that God, his Father alone, is worthy of worship. The serpent didn't have a chance to tempt the Son of God to sin. In the ministry of Jesus, Christ pushes back on the burdens of life outside of the garden. He feeds the poor, opens the eyes of the blind, makes the paralyzed walk, raises the dead, and forgives sins. And then in a different garden, Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus there embraces the will of the Father to face all the sin and death in order to redeem his people. And although the gospel doesn't use this strict imagery, I, I remember uh, when I think about Genesis 3 and I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, this, this scene from a movie called The Passion of the Christ that happened uh, that, w- that was released in 2004. They took some creative license with this scene, but it's such a powerful way to describe what, what is happening in the garden, on the cross, and in the resurrection. And the Passion of the Christ in this movie, Christ is praying in this garden. And like Genesis 3, a snake crawls underneath Christ while he's just on his face, on the ground, praying. A snake just makes you feel uneasy, crawls underneath him, representing this great serpent, the Satan, the devil. But then Jesus gets up, and he looks, and all these soldiers are in the background, and they're coming, and Judas is about to betray him. He stands up to face the sin, the death, And the evil and darkness of mankind. And you know what he does? He lifts up his foot and bam! Stomps the head of that serpent. It is a dope scene, guys. It is amazing. The whole thing is a very, very violent movie. But it's just worth it for that scene. It's so amazing. Because that's exactly what happened on the cross. That's what happened in the empty tomb. He, the serpent, tried to give him his worst, tried to give the Christ his worst, but all he did was kill him on the cross. But yeah, he thought he could take out this man, but this isn't a man. This is the Son of God. This is the Word made flesh. This is eternal life, and you cannot kill eternal life. So he died on the cross, but he took his life back up. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are now covered by new life. We are provided a garment by his sacrifice that fixes things, that truly makes us whole, that covers our sin, that covers our shame. And now we are given the same power that raised Christ from the dead and us through faith to also take on all that is evil and all that is wicked and all that is sinful that we face in ourselves as well. Colossians 3, 2, or Colossians 2.13 says it this way. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, you could add the serpent, he made a public spectacle of all of them triumphing over them by the cross. Although we can't go back to Eden, brothers and sisters, God's life-giving presence in Jesus Christ has come to us to give us life. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The promised child crushed The head of the serpent. The true and better sacrifice covers all of your sin and shame. The death of Jesus resulted not in a return to the dust, but in resurrection. The way, the truth, and the life has come and has provided a way for us back to that tree of life, back to eternal life. And the question for this Advent season for you is are you going to follow him back there to life, brothers and sisters? And that's what we are pondering right now and throughout our lives.